be looking at Luke 17, verses 11 to 19 this morning. And that can be found, if you don't have a Bible, um, that can be found on page 1045 in the Pew Bible. While you're turning there, one announcement that I missed. Um, there's a special anniversary coming up this week, and it would be Gail and Zach's 25th anniversary on Wednesday. So, woohoo! <laughs> Thankful for you guys. Okay, well, you probably have heard the expressions fairweather faith and foxhole faith. Heard of those two things? Um, Fairweather faith is the faith that's exercised when things are going well on an earthly level. And yet, when the storms of life strike, all of a sudden, sometimes that faith is nowhere to be found. On the other hand, there's foxhole faith, and that's the faith that's exercised when the bullets are flying and life on an earthly level is falling apart. And yet, after the bullets stop flying, life calms down, returns to normal, and oftentimes that faith is nowhere to be found. So on the surface, it seems like those would be opposites. It seems like they would be polar versions of faith that are very dissimilar. But if you actually dig underneath them, you realize that there's, they share the same root. There's an ironic similarity between the two. And the similarity is that they both focus on the same thing, wanting the same thing, namely earthly comfort. So a person with fair weather faith wants to keep the spiritual forecast at a balmy 75 with a slight breeze. A person with foxhole faith wants the threats to pass so that life can return to peaceful normalcy. So when earthly circumstantial comfort is taken away, fair weather faith folds it doesn't believe in a God who would ordain and allow earthly suffering and pain. Foxhole faith, when earthly circumstantial comfort is taken away, it kicks in, willing to do anything, even trust God, to get back to the place of peaceful normalcy. So do you see the similar root underneath both of those above-ground things that we call faith, but we know they're not real faith? So the true colors of faith are displayed when earthly comfort is restored in the one case because at that point the faith is no longer necessary. Desire for peaceful normalcy has been fulfilled so there's no more need for God. God is used as a tool, basically. In both cases, it's clear that God is the means and earthly comfort is the end. That's idolatry. It's dangerous to use God like a tool. Okay? On the other hand, true faith, the faith that sticks through thick and thin is the faith that displays the worth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The faith that splits in the storms or um, the faith that uh, only shows up when the storms come simply magnify the value of earthly comfort. Okay, so faith magnifies its object. It magnifies what you want, what you're trusting in, what you're after. Okay, and I don't know about you, but I don't want fake faith, 
Fairweather or Foxhole Faith. Don't you want to trust the Lord with all your heart through every season of life, no matter the weather, no matter the war, in our souls, in our circumstances. And so if you share that desire, this text this morning has got a lot of help for us in Luke 17. So let me pray and then we will dive in. I'm going to read it with a few comments along the way and then after we have kind of walked through it slowly, um, then we're going to focus on three points of um, interpretation and application as we uh, apply our lives to this text. Okay, so let's pray. Father, we, if we're honest, I think we recognize the roots of foxhole faith and fairweather faith in our hearts. Maybe it's because we never have truly trusted you. And if there are folks in that, that place today, I pray that you would help them see that they've simply sought to use you as a means. And I pray that you would awaken and, and birth true faith in their hearts this morning. And for those of us who do believe and yet fall into these ditches on one side or the other, where we really, we do believe, but we fall prey to the temptation to really want not you, but to want earthly comfort, we pray that you would purify our faith and strengthen our faith and lock our faith on its only proper object on you, on your gracious son, on the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would fan our flame of gratitude to be burning brightly and hotly and hot. We are so prone to complain. We're so prone to be so ungrateful, and I pray that we would see how true faith naturally has this grateful orientation to it. Lord, I pray that you would make us a humble, grateful people, that we would joyfully give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light because you've rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have redemption. So kill our roots of complaining and unbelief and raise to life and fan into flame our, our faith and our gratitude that we might be to the praise of your glorious grace as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's read this text along together. And again, like I said, I'll stop in a few places and make some comments. Um, and then we'll move to some points of, of application. So while Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, okay, we need to stop there briefly. This on the way to Jerusalem is a theme that began back in 951, where Jesus sets his face like flint and he's headed to Jerusalem. Okay, it's going to continue until his death. He came to die. He did not get caught up in some tragic plot 
on his life. He wasn't a victim of circumstance. The cross was not plan B. It was plan A from the beginning. It was the only plan. And so Jesus set his face like flint. We see it there at 951. And then regularly, Luke reminds us that he is on his way to Jerusalem. And along the way, the looming cross falls like a shadow on all that he's doing and saying in route. We also see, as Luke writes, that Jesus' destination has implications for us if we are going to follow him, implications for discipleship. Okay? He did not come merely to throw off Roman oppressors and set up an earthly kingdom right away, even though that's what they expected. Sin is so much worse than any Caesar or Roman occupation. Sin is the real master that we need freed from. We need saved from ourselves. And we need saved from the wrath of a holy and just God who can't just sweep our cosmic rebellion under the rug and wink us in. So there is a cross before the crown. There was for Jesus and there is for us. Okay, so on the way is a place where Jesus makes it clear what it looks like to follow him what discipleship looks like. That's why he said, whoever wants to come after me, whoever wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life in this life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, taking up his cross, you die on a cross, losing his life for my sake will save it. Okay, so here we are on the way again, which means we should expect to learn more of what it means, what it looks like to trust and follow Jesus, okay? So while he was on the way to Jerusalem, back to the text, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. When you're up in Galilee and you're headed down to Jerusalem, you're going to pass between these two areas. As he entered a village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance, met him, and they raised their voices. Okay, so we need to just stop again. Lepers and leprosy, what is this? Um, We now call it Hansen's disease. We know a little bit more about it than they did in the days of um, the New Testament. It's not so much a skin disease as it's caused by a bacteria that causes skin sores and nerve damage and muscle weakness. And that nerve damage... And numbness means that injury and secondary infections can do a great deal of damage if it goes untreated. Leprosy in the Bible refers to more than just Hansen's disease, okay? It could refer to a broader range of skin diseases, but probably also included leprosy proper, or what we call Hansen's disease as well. But regardless of whether these 10 men had Hansen's disease or some other skin disease, we do know a bit of how life would have been for them. It would have been totally isolating, and they would have been ostracized, marginalized. They had to be outside of the community. Okay, we considered this a little bit back in chapter 5 where we met a leper there, but let's just put ourselves in their shoes again um, now in chapter 17. Imagine you are in the first century living in one of these communities, these little villages. Um, You're a Jew, and you see some lesions show up on your skin. You notice them. You just try to convince yourself it's not what you fear. You start washing with more frequency and then a little bit frantically. 
you and your family know what this will mean. You're afraid to do it, but you've got to go to the priest. You know, you don't want your suspicions to be confirmed, but you know you have to go and show yourself to the priest. He's the one that will examine you and declare whether you're clean or unclean. So you go to the priest, you follow the prescriptions of Leviticus 13 and 14. You've got leprosy. Okay, here's how it's stated in Leviticus 13. He is a leprous man. He's unclean. The priest shall surely pronounce him unclean. As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn and the hair of his head shall be uncovered and he shall cover his mustache and cry unclean. I don't think that means that everybody had to have a mustache, but anyway. Okay, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Imagine that happening. So imagine you outside the camp, outside the community. Again, if it, if it doesn't resolve, if it doesn't get better, you're out there for the rest of your life, nearly cut off from your family. You know, they could probably bring you some food and that kind of thing, but by and large, you are cut off from your family, friends, vocation. You become a beggar. You may never again experience anything like a normal day in the community. Just imagine, stop and imagine what that would feel like, how that would affect you, okay? I don't know how long these 10 men, we're not told, have lived like this, but even if it was only one year, you can imagine the shame and the loneliness and the hopelessness of living this way. And then you hear about this miracle worker named Jesus who's curing all kinds of people from all kinds of sickness. Maybe they heard about that leper getting healed back in chapter 5. And here he shows up in their village. So these 10 leprous men stood at a distance because they had to. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, see again, the priests were the health inspectors. <laughs> okay? They're the ones that declare you clean. So go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, it took some faith to take him at his word and start going, they were cleansed. But the question is, what kind of faith was it? So verse 15, now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. So one turns back. His response is obviously described in a way that makes it clear that this is the exemplary response. This is the proper response. And then the shocker comes. And he was a Samaritan. They were considered half-breeds. This is not the expected one to respond rightly, to respond in faith. He was the outsider in Two senses. He's got two strikes against him. Not only is he a leper, he's a Samaritan. He's a half-breed. Verses 17 and 18. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Again, you see, this obviously should have been the response of them all. Verse 19. And Jesus said to him, stand up and go. 
Remember, he had fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks. Stand up and go. Your faith has, at least Pew Bible says, made you well. It's the word for to save, for salvation. Your faith has saved you. Okay? Sometimes it refers to physical healing. Sometimes it refers to both. So what's going on here? Well, we have people who were cleansed, verse 14. It's talked about as healing in verse 15, cleansing in verse 17. But there's a difference between what happened with this guy and the other nine. He was made well. He was saved. Okay? He wasn't merely cleansed. He was truly cleansed. Okay? It's deeper than just the physical healing. So that's a quick run-through of the story. Now we're going to follow the outline in the bulletin um, as we seek to draw out a few points of application. Um, first, a little review from last week so that we can connect the dots between the first part of the chapter and this part. Um, with Christ in the school of faith. Remember last week how Jesus said, in effect, um, you know, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If, if he sins against you, forgive him. Seven times in a day, whoa. Okay, so we need stiffer spiritual backbone and softer hearts. Okay? And the disciples say, forgive seven times in a day? I mean, how could that guy be sincere? Really? Increase our faith. Okay, they hear this from Jesus and they say, whoa, this is like help. Increase our faith. So the Lord draws them into the school of faith and gives them two lessons last week in the school of faith. One, faith is not about faith. Remember the mustard seed, the mulberry tree? If you have faith like a mustard seed, you can say to this tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea. You can do the impossible. The point is faith is not about faith. The power, the real power is in the object of faith has everything to do with the power of the one in whom we trust. Faith, by definition, looks away from itself. Faith's power is not in itself, its size, its intensity. Faith's power is in its object. It doesn't matter how sincere and intense your faith is in purple unicorns. They can't do you any good because they don't exist. But God is so great and gracious and powerful that if you just have mustard seed size faith, you can do the impossible, okay? And the point is, faith is not about faith. Faith is about the one in whom you trust and his strength and power. For those of us who know how weak our faith is and how weak it can be at times, isn't that encouraging? <laughs> Increase our faith. Here, let me pull you into the school of faith. <laughs> I'm going to encourage you. You have little faith. I'm going to do it by showing you how great your God is. Second lesson was, you'll never put God in your debt. I can't take the time to go through, just listen to last week, but the point of 7 through 10 is you can never obligate God by your service. We will never become God's patron by our service, no matter how sacrificial it is. We only ever go deeper into debt, and that's beautiful. It's great that it's set up that way. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him alone be the glory. So the disciples ask, Jesus, increase our faith. Jesus responds by increasing their faith in two ways, giving them a bigger view of God and a smaller view of themselves. 
That's a really helpful two-part lesson, especially when it's put side to side. On our worst days, the object of our faith has not gotten weak. God is still God. There's hope. Okay, we never deserved anything in the first place, and he's still merciful. And then on our best days, no matter how hard we've worked and sacrificed and given and served, we can't start to get self-righteous and prideful. We're still debtors to mercy. At the end of the day, we're still unworthy servants. We'll never put God in our debt. So we can be heartened and humbled all at once. That was lessons one and two. Now, in this section, faith is still front and center here. We get lesson number three. The reason we know this is because of verse 19. Your faith has made you well, okay? But that's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. So lesson three in the school of faith, this thankful leper's faith is intended to illustrate what true faith looks like, or at least an aspect of it. He becomes an example of true and vital faith. And we see that true faith is truly grateful. So third lesson in the school of faith um, it's point two in the outline. Faith sees and treasures the giver in and above the gift. Faith treasures the giver in the gift and above the gift. Do you see it there? So only one leper who's cleansed and returns to give thanks to Jesus. Where were the other nine? Well, the other nine had gotten what they wanted. They no longer had a need for the tool. There are two ways to be grateful. The way in which your gratitude terminates on the gift, truly, even if you give lip service to the tool or the means, and then there's a way in which your gratitude terminates on the giver. Okay, you know this if you've ever given a gift to a child, okay, or... <laughs> maybe you are outside the family or uh, extended family member, you give a gift to the child and the parent has to say, now, Joey, say thank you. Oh, yeah, thank you. And then goes right back. The, the gratitude is terminating on the gift. True faith, like that of the Samaritan here, sees and treasures the giver in the gift. This man is glorifying God. <clears throat> he's seeing God in the gift of his cleansing. And he comes back, falls at Jesus' feet, and gives thanks to him. That term for giving thanks, it's where we get the term the Eucharist, giving thanks. Um, it's used quite a few times in the New Testament. With one exception, it is always used in reference to giving thanks to God. So there's a very high view of Jesus being portrayed here. This man is glorifying God, and he's giving thanks to the divine Son of God, falling at his feast in worship, giving thanks to Jesus. So faith sees the giver and treasures the giver in the gift and actually above the gift. We'll get to that in a minute. So true faith doesn't use God to get what it really wants. True faith wants God for God. God is the greatest treasure. We had a wedding here yesterday. Um, one of the things that I said in the message um, that I've said many times before is um, 
a little illustration that, that gets at the nature of sin. Okay, in Romans 1, it talks about how we all by nature turn from God and we worship and serve created things. Okay? Worship and serve created things. We can't hold that out at arm's length. We, we, we love the gifts. And sometimes we give some token lip service to the giver, but we really don't want the giver. We want the gifts. And when we do that, we are like a woman who falls in love with the engagement ring and tells the fiancé to shove off. We know that's silly. The ring is a token. Why would you let your affection terminate on this little band of gold? It's a token to show you the love and commitment of the husband. That's cold. It's wrong. It's ugly. It's misdirected love. Well, how cold and wrong and ugly is it to use God like that? That's all of us by nature. Do you like to be used? Has this ever happened to you? Do you like to be used for your stuff or your connections or your services? Has this ever happened? Seems like somebody's sincere. They really just want to use you to get what they want. And probably they try to mask it as best as possible so that they seem sincere, but sometimes, you know, it's obvious. How's that feel? Why, why, do we, why are we bothered by that? Why is that dishonoring? It's belittling. Do we as human beings have any honor to be treated like a tool? Well, if we do at all, does God have any honor? So quasi-faith that just uses God to get the gifts or a certain kind of life or to get out of a jam or out of a trial, foxhole faith, that kind of faith doesn't glorify God. It glorifies its true object, what you really want. And so it dishonors and belittles God. But faith that sees and treasures the giver in the gift, you can give thanks to the gift for the gift. There's lots of good gifts. It's not that we become ascetics and, you know, oh, I, I'm, I'm not into gifts. <laughs> no, there's lots of good gifts, but you always trace the sunbeam back to, back to the source. So we see the giver in the gift. We treasure the giver in the gift and above the gift. This Samaritan is not turning back to thank a tool. People don't treasure their tire jacks. I mean, okay, maybe you do, but you only do when you're in the jam. You and I never think about tire jacks unless we have a flat tire. And then once you're out of the jam, you forget about the tire jack. It just goes back in the trunk. Well, we, do you treat God like a tire jack? That's not true faith. Okay, so... You could receive much kindness from God, just like those nine lepers received grace and mercy and healing from Jesus and still not exercise true faith. Okay, the former, when, when fake faith, quasi-faith, walks through suffering and loss, it questions the goodness of God because what it want, really wanted is taken away. True faith, when it walks through suffering and loss, clings to the goodness of God because God is its greatest good. He's treasured above 
the gifts. One man said this, that healing can lead away from salvation when we only want something from God and not God in this something. Did you hear that? Healing can lead away from salvation when we only want something from God and not God in the something. So we really need this third lesson in the school of faith. True faith is a grateful faith, and that grateful faith treasures God in and above the gift. That kind of faith is the healing and the wholeness that we really need. You and I, I mean, again, we imagined that we were lepers. You could have the skin of a baby and live till you're 125. And if you're still worshiping and serving created things, even if it's baptized with a veneer of religiosity, you are still as spiritually insensitive and numb as if you had the worst case of leprosy imaginable. That's not a good place to be. It'd be better to die with the leprosy and really be trusting in Jesus. Okay? So we need that third lesson. The last point, no locals in the kingdom. What in the world does that mean? Well, another way to say it would be this. In this kingdom, in Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom that he is inaugurating, bringing, we are all foreigners. Okay? Still might not be clear. It's okay. Remember that the story is told in such a way as to save the shocker for the end. The fact that he's a Samaritan is held off until the end there in verse 16. We don't know that until then. We see exemplary faith, but we don't know it's a Samaritan until the end. Okay, again, they were viewed as half-breeds. From the perspective of the Jews, they were outside. Two strikes against him. And once we realize that, it kind of... It kind of throws off the equilibrium and you, you start to, have you ever watched one of those movies where you, you get this punchline at the end and then you have to think back through? Oh, whoa, what? Well, go back to verse 14. Jesus saw them and he said to them, go and show yourself to the priests. Uh, which ones? The Samaritans claimed that true worship took place on Mount Gerizim at their temple with their priests. The Jews claim that true worship took place in Jerusalem at the temple with their priests. So who's Jesus sending these guys to? Some of the thoughts that would be running through the minds of those who were kind of steeped in that first century culture. This man's response turns out to be exemplary. He turns back from going to the temple and goes to Jesus. And Jesus declares him not merely healed, that had already happened, and he saw it. The man himself had seen that he was cleansed. Jesus declares that he had been saved, made well. This is, a, this is subtle, but it's going on here in this text. This is the only place in the New Testament that it talks about Jesus being the high priest. Jesus is the greater temple. What was the temple but the meeting place between God and man? The temple sacrifices were what made it possible for a holy God to dwell with sinful man. The Jews thought that they were well, they were saved, they were okay because of their heritage, because of their temple observance. You had to be a Jew to have access to this temple. 
The term that Jesus uses, this is another clue here, the term that Jesus uses in verse 18 for foreigner, for the Samaritan, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. But it was used somewhere else, and first century people would know this. It was used on signs that kept foreigners out of the parts of the temple that only Jews could access. Listen to one commentator. This term was found on inscriptions that forbade foreigners from access to those areas of the temple available only to Jews. Jesus' use of the term is thus ironic indeed, for he observes how this normally ostracized person has behaved in a manner appropriate to the authentic children of Abraham. So it's subtle, but this is powerful. The only one who came to the right place God and man, to be saved, to be truly made well, is the foreigner, the outsider, the one who would have been barred from accessing the temple in Jerusalem. So the outsider, we've heard this many times in Luke so far, if you've been with us, the outsider is brought inside. The lost one is found. Do you see it there in verse 18? Was no one found? That is Thematic language in Luke, lost and found, lost and found, lost and found. We saw it in chapter 15. You just go through and look for this language. It's, it's a really powerful theme in the book. The lost one is found. Was no one found who returned to give glory to God? The far off one is brought near. Now, turn to Ephesians 2 so that you can see what is happening here. This is a precursor of what Paul clearly explains in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11. This is, this is a text, it, it might seem like, oh, this is all about temple and weird stuff. No, this is a text to be savored. <laughs> okay, so just listen. This is your spiritual biography if you are a believer. Verse 11, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, we're not part of the Jewish nation, covenant community, naturally, by heritage. Maybe a few of you are Jews by birth, but by and large, okay? So called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were outside But now, in the gospel, because of Jesus, his life and death and resurrection, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He didn't come to just give us peace. He is the gift. He is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. That actually refers to those signs. You foreigners, keep out. He broke it down so that the outsiders could come in. 
by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is in the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that, he, so that in himself he might, ta- he might make the two into one new man, Jews and Gentiles, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away, spiritual lepers, and peace to those who were near, the Jews who were at least by birth in the covenant. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father, access inside. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple. So Jesus is the temple, the meeting place between God and man, and then by his gospel grace, he creates the temple, and that's the church, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So, there are no locals in this kingdom. <laughs> We're all foreigners. If you think you're a local, as if you can just kind of by birth be a part of this kingdom, you're actually lost. If you think you're at home, you're not going to feel the need to be found. Okay, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22 follows 2, 1 to 10. And that's Everybody's spiritual biography, dead in trespasses and sins, children of wrath, deserving God's wrath. Okay, so this might just sound like a bunch of information about first century Jewish temple life or something like that. It is not that. Have you ever gotten a really good deal? I mean a really good deal. A steal. And let's say it's on something that you really needed and you really wanted. How did you respond? Did you keep it to yourself? Did you just turn the page and go on? Oh, that was good. What's next on the agenda? No, you didn't. You gushed. You told people. Oh, you wouldn't believe the... You were happy. You said stuff like, I can't believe it. Can you believe that? It was this. I got to. You were nicer to people that day, weren't you? True faith is grateful faith. If we really know our natural lostness and deadness and dullness and deformity, spiritually speaking, if we really know what our sin deserves and the condemnation that we are under because of it, if we know the debt that is piled up on top of us that we cannot pay, if we know that we are outside, excluded, no hope, without God, if we really know that, and then we hear, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
while you were still dead in your trespasses and sins, made you alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Even when we were dead, raising us up with him, seating us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, that's not all, so that in the coming ages he might show forever the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. You'll never put God in your debt. You're just going to keep going deep, deeper into debt. It's a gift of God, not a result of words, so that no one can boast. You're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. <laughs> this leper, his healing, his being made well, in a sense, is just a little foreshadowing of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. He obviously sees something deeper than just the physical healing. But this is it fully explained. If we really grasp these things, I think it's so easy to forget. It's so easy to just, oh yeah, and move on and get past the gospel. It's so easy to forget where we came from and how we were outside. True faith is a thankful faith that sees and treasures the giver in the gift and that the giver is the gift above any of his gifts. Because see, grumbling and complaining is actually unbelief gone public. Okay, we're all guilty. Thanksgiving and praise are faith gone public. If you're like me, you'd be convicted. <laughs> and you might be echoing the disciples right about now and saying, increase my faith. Okay. Let me tell you a few things in the school. It's ultimately not about the size of your faith. Get your eyes off of your faith. <laughs> There's no encouragement there. Get your eyes on Jesus. There's a lot of encouragement there. Get your eyes on how big and great your God is. There's a lot of hope there. You'll never put God in your debt, even on your best days. Don't think too highly of yourselves. From him and through him and to him are all things. So we don't get thankful faith like this that's exemplified for us just by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We do it by believing the gospel. We are unworthy foreigners, outsiders in the ultimate eternal sense, apart from the grace of God. We deserve to be outside forever, the door shut for eternity, and for us to be on the wrong side with no appeal. That's what we deserve. And by grace, through Christ, he preached peace to us and he brought us in. In! We are in forever. There is no better in than this in into God's family, into God's love. The only fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Into God's grace and peace forever. So the more we have our eyes open to the horrors of the outside that we deserve 
and the wonders of the inside that we do not deserve, the more we will joyfully, Colossians 1, give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul's praying for them that they would have that kind of joyful thanksgiving. Don't you want that kind of joyful thanksgiving? Well, God gives us texts like this, full of grace like this, to give us that kind of joyful thanksgiving. And as we grasp it and our faith increases, at least our faith is locked on the right object, it just might make sense to people who are incorrigible, fair-weather faith people falling into that ditch or, ditch or foxhole faith people falling into that ditch, it might just make sense for us and not seem like an implausible, impossible, pious platitude to give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> if we really focus on the gospel, that might start to make sense even in this broken, fallen world where we would give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, increase our faith. And we praise you that you are the God and Savior that came and lived and died and rose again to give us true faith and to sustain true faith in you. And you are able to keep us and to help us out of those ditches that we so easily fall into so that we can be people with sincerely thankful faith that live to the praise of your glorious grace. So do it, Lord, for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus be with you. You're dismissed.